I gotta be honest, Matt. I haven't read any of the things that you told me. Other than the barber it's one. It's okay. I think the barber one can be our main force of conversation. Oh, you think so? I think. Oh, yeah. We can say a lot about it. I thought maybe we'd do like a uh, year in review type thing, year too. Year in review is... is but, but you know what? A, a, a year in review is great. A year in review is great. So saith we all. So how were your uh, how were your holidays? Lovely. Yeah. I had a really nice time. Where'd you go? I uh, went to went, hung out with the folks, uh, as many as we could summon, and we went to Salem, New ha- uh, Salem, Mass. Had a nice dinner. Got to see my brother in from San Diego and his pregnant wife. That's great. Do late uh, late April, April twenty second, I believe. A good Taurus child, a Taurian. A Taurus, a leader of men. Is that what a Taurus is? That's what a Taurus is. And Hitler was an April baby. He sure was. He was actually a Taurus, in fact. Well, well I mean, obviously. Yeah, I mean, he's got he's <laughs> got the fixed sign written all over him. It Pan- might be Panache the, out the wazoo. Yes, indeed. I didn't care for his mustache. He uh, and I believe it's the cusp. So that's the Aries Taurus cusp. Watch the uh, fuck out for those. Freaks. You got it. Yeah, you got to be careful. Hitler. Uh, somebody, I think Stalin, maybe, and uh, Jack Nicholson. Aries Taurus cusp freaks. That makes a lot of sense. The cusp of power. I got sick on my holidays, so uh, if it sounds like I'm coughing up a lung, it's because that's what's happening. Oh, fantastic! And uh, I thought it was just applause. <laughs> no, yeah, that's my my uh, a, 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 a aioli. Is that what they're called? My a, aioli. Giving it up for the podcast. So what's up with this Kevin Spacey doodad? You hear about that? The Kevin Spacey. Fufara? I haven't. What's the Kevin? The hullabaloo? What's the Kevin Spacey hullabaloo? So Kevin Spacey... Creep. Uh, ...has now been outed in a, in a creep fashion. Right. Uh, the mother of a boy who was 14 at the time says that they were at a restaurant in Nantucket. He was just funneling drinks to this 14-year-old Yikes. at a restaurant. 14-year-old boy. Uh, I think... I don't know how long ago. I think in the aughts. And proceeded to put his hand down the boy's pants. Oh, dear. Yes. And that's after there's also... And that was that's the thing that's currently being discussed. That's what I think is going to see some trial time. And then, before that, there's another ex- instance of him crawling into bed with a, a young lad. And apparently there's, like, I, I think multiple other accusations of pederasty-type situations. Pederasty-type behavior. What's a pederast, Walter? Uh, pederast... <laughs> Believes in nothing. Um, uh, eight-year-olds, dude. Um, yeah, like pre pre age of consent, man on boy action. Dear God. Right, and that's another example of Kevin Spacey. I feel like everybody liked Kevin Spacey. We all agreed he was a great actor. We all saw every movie he's ever in: American Beauty and The Usual Suspects and Seven and whatever else you can mention. Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, and all this other shit. Um, Right? House of Cards. Which leads me to the new controversy, which I guess you haven't heard. So the woman's saying, you molested my then 14-year-old son. A couple other people have come forward, so it's in the air now. And he just released, I couldn't stomach watching all of it, but he just released a YouTube clip, a self-produced YouTube clip from Kevin Spacey at YouTube.com or whatever it is, his own personal YouTube account, of him in character as Frank Underwood from House of Cards 
cooking like his Christmas dinner and saying, I can't believe I'm being accused of these vile things. I know what you want, and I'm never going to surrender. Is he trying to be cute? This is what's so fucked up about it because it's like he is trying to be cute. He's kind of trying to be funny and sort of do a meta thing. But he's being accused of molesting children. So it's not a great idea. It's kind of mind-boggling to think about that he's going to now – his response, his public response, released on YouTube, wasn't hacked or anything, uh, is to be – his sleazy character that everybody knows is an evil, corrupt bastard who is, in fact, sexually edgy. Let's put it that way on the show. And then does his YouTube response to the world with horrifying accusations in the guise of that character? And then is all like, you won't destroy me. I will take you down and I, I will not apologize for things I haven't done. And I then, have to watch this. Yeah, I could only stomach a little bit of it because it's really like, aside from the creep factor of the whole context the whole scenario i bet it's been taken down by now i'm sure it has but it's also like why would you do that i mean just objectively just saying if i were kevin spacey or kevin spacey's agent or publicist or whatever or his friend or family member or something there's no way i'd be like you know it'd be a great idea kevin everyone's accusing you know you're being publicly accused of pedophilia and you know assault uh, why don't you take your most beloved, you know, I'm sorry, your most evil character, not your beloved characters, as I was going to say. Why not, why not take, you know, don't take any of the characters people like. Take the character that's known for being evil and then doing a response to it in that character's persona and then kind of like sarcastically and sort of meta defending yourself. What? Why on earth would you do such a thing? It makes no sense. It makes no sense. It's really weird. It's almost the equivalent of maybe like if Bill Cosby released like a limited edition Fat Albert that was like, hey, 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 rape's not okay. Like, why the fuck would you do such a thing? It doesn't make any sense. Or Harvey Weinstein making a movie about a creepy Hollywood producer. Like, why would you do that? After all, we shared everything, you and I. I told you my deepest, darkest secrets. And he's talking I to the camera like exactly he does actually. what people are capable of. I shocked you with my honesty, but mostly I challenged you and made you think. And you trusted me, even though you knew you shouldn't. So we're not done, no matter what anyone says. And besides, I know what you want. Of course, some believed everything and have just been waiting with bated breath to hear me confess it all. They're just dying to have me declare that everything said is true and that I got what I deserved. Wouldn't that be easy? It was all so simple. How long is this thing? Oh, God, it's another two minutes. Yeah. I can't really stop. This is it. weird. Why? It's really weird. Why did he do this? And so creepy and so wrong. He's, so he's, all, he's being himself, though, right? No, he's playing Frank Underwood. No, I know he's fr- playing Frank Underwood. But oh, but he's he... playing Frank Underwood responding to the to, the to the real life stuff. Right. To the real stuff that Kevin Spacey, everyday person, is being accused of. He's going into the character of the evil slime ball that he plays. Also, who's already dead. Who's Who was killed off because right. of these accusations. Yeah. Who wasn't on the last season of the show, which I was never really that big of a fan of. I watched all of it. That's one of those shows. We can talk about how shitty that show got. Mm -hmm. Like, that's one of those shows that just went, like, 
way way down in quality very very quickly absolutely i think by the by the like halfway through season two i didn't give a shit anymore yeah well my whole I thing still watched was, it but. <laughs> yeah but I, I hate watched it myself and like i wrote about it for the fuse a couple times actually and my first point i wrote it i think about it twice maybe and one of my points was like this show needs to figure out what the hell its perspective is are we gonna is this some like richard the third we love you because you're evil situation mm-hmm. is it like a satanic version of the west wing or is this camp fun is this just campy crazy shoving people off balconies uh over the top weirdness and th- that's fine pick yeah. but pick us he it was falling between the show was falling between the stools does frank have some idealism but he's just happened to be manipulative about getting what he believes is right or is he just 100 percent evil even then after a while i was like i don't care right i don't care enough about the characters i don't care enough about the situation that they're in it was i remember when it first came out i was like this is pretty much what everybody thinks American politics is probably like which is another big problem and uh and it's definitely what people outside of the country think American politics is like sure so Kevin Spacey doing that just makes no sense to me and it's really creepy and weird and stupid and I I don't know how this is going to play out with the rest of his drama let me make a prediction not well not well you heard it here first kids the Arts Juice podcast says this will not play out well for Mr. Spacey So uh, how do you think 2018 went? 2018 was a long, prolonged slog through the bog of misery. You think it was? It felt long? It felt very long. Stuff happened where I was like, oh my god, yeah, somebody, d- that guy died, and I, I forgot that it was this year. Is that like because so long it's ago. long, though? Well, I mean, you I know. I felt like everything in 2018 happened yesterday. Really? Like, I was, uh, I finally got around to uh, speed reading a gig- colossal waste of time called... Uh, fire and fury oh and i read that, that too yeah it was loaned to me in i think february mm-hmm. and i got around to yeah. sp- speed reading it like two weeks ago wow, february yeah that's and i was like and i was like this came out in january yeah this just came out it's almost a year old now yeah and it's old news and it's, it's it was old news a week after it got released mm-hmm. and we have had an astounding amount of absolute shit about the trump presidency oh yeah just everywhere just, every which way just just cramming up uh much needed space in bookstores all across the country yeah and everybody wanted to tune in for this is kind of what i was saying earlier about the average 
middle-of-the-road liberal person just wanted their tabloid fix, wanted to hear right. the stories about the bad man doing bad stuff. You got you got Fire and Fury. You've got your Woodward. Mm-hmm. You've got that dude that uh, wrote the book Collusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, Any you, number of scandals. That oh, I mean, we've 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 had nothing but Russian fear mongering for palace intrigue. For yeah, palace intrigue, not even that intriguing palace. For for a little while when I was reading Fire and Fury, I was like, you know. It's nice to be reminded just how much of a total clusterfuck mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like the campaign was, mm-hmm. as well as the early days of the administration. In some ways, we're reaping what 2018... We're just about to reap what 2018 has sown. Because the guy who's been behind the scenes of everything, what everybody's been talking about, is Mueller. And he says that... They say that they're going to release... He's going to release his report in like early 2019. That we have that on the horizon, they say. So if... Everything that we've been talking about in 2018 comes to a head in like three or four months. And again, let's take a second to remember, like, we've seen so many people going to jail or at least being threatened, not necessarily going to jail and going to jail in the sense of being sentenced. But like Paul Manafort spent a lot of time behind bars in his waiting room this year, as has Flynn and um, uh, Cohen and -hmm. a bunch of other people. So that those little stories popped up here and there throughout the year, tantalizing everyone. It's going to be a wash, though. I don't know. It's going to be a... It could be everything. It could be nothing. It's going to be a a, a, a damp squid. That's not what the phrase is. It could be a dead squid or it could be a mermaid. We don't know. <laughs> no, it's either a manatee or a mermaid. Yeah, it's either a manatee or a mermaid. Yeah. And the thing is, is that even if the report does come out, and even if everybody is... Well, the report's got to come out eventually. Yeah, well, even if the report does come out and everybody is, is totally vilified by it and, and and heads roll, then they just go to jail and then they'll be pardoned eventually. Or, go to jail for what? Oh, collusion, lying to the FBI, lying to Congress, yeah. funneling dirty money around. All things that you should go to jail for. It's just that 25 to 35% of the country won't care and will stick with it. I'd say a vast majority of the country doesn't care. No, 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 no. People care. It's just that once they hear that, it's not going to move the goalposts that much because there's still be 25 to 35% of it. If Trump did, uh, if Trump ate babies, they'd be like, well, you know, we have too many babies. There are people who are going to make excuses for that asshole for the next 100 years. So, so who's going to jail? Is Jared Kushner going to jail? Mm-mm. Is Well, he Cohen, might. You never know. Is Cohen going to jail? Cohen might very well go to jail. Is Ivanka going to jail? Ivanka might not go to jail. Is Flynn going to jail? Flynn's probably going to jail. Is Manafort's Manafort, probably going to jail. Papadopoulos? Papadopoulos isn't going to jail. Is he just went to jail for two weeks. Two weeks! A nice holiday, yeah. Yeah, he had a nice little uh, a nice little tennis excursion. Is Trump going to jail? Trump will not go to jail. He, may, he won't even be impeached, I don't think. Yeah. But whatever, and this is Bill said this too, and I, I really agree with him on this, and a lot of other people have said. Did this. he say this on the Arts Fuse? He did. In case uh, people, in case, no, he didn't say it on the Arts Fuse podcast. In case people aren't, can't remember this is the. Arts but Fuse if podcast. you, I can't remember. Yeah, I can't remember President Nixon. I can't remember the bills I have to pay, or even yesterday. But I, I think whatever politically paralyzes him is okay by me, as long as it's obviously true. But. You know, if it's going to cast a big cloud over his administration and he'll be a lame duck going into 2020, all the better for the country, all the better for the world. So without getting too much sidetracked by mm. the the palace intrigue, although right. it's it's kind Which of hard. Which did dominate 2018. Yeah, it's, it's hard to talk about the arts scene, uh, especially in America in 2018, without referencing the current administration. Because the current administration seemed to just dominate and influence every single thing that was produced or everything was seen in light of. 
And I think that means that was, I think, very much to the detriment of the arts, yep, media, uh, the country's emotional and physical and psychological well-being, mm-hmm. to criticism, especially. I'd say criticism, even on, in my own stuff, you know. I'd, I'd tell myself beforehand, don't talk about Trump, don't talk about Trump, don't talk about Trump. Right. And then eventually he'd slip in here and there. He comes you know? into conversations. And uh, and that's really bothersome. Right. And and I'm totally guilty of that. Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's a, I don't think there's probably not a publication out there that doesn't spend a good deal of its time talking about the current president. And, and, and a lot of artists. And a lot of artists. Uh, like, you know, do you think the post gets made? Was that this year or last year? I think it was last year. Oh, that was last year. I, I felt like it was, was just yesterday. But you know the post is 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 you know basically I haven't seen it, but I know. it's an advertisement for Jeff Bezos' uh, newspaper, you know because everybody says the post is uh is where you go for the truth and you know that we don't like Trump and stuff like that and as well as uh selling the Iraq War to the American people and stuff. But um, well, some of the pundits did. Some did, yeah. I remembered reading the the post specifically to find out about what was going on with weapons of mass destruction. And I remember articles coming out saying there are no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's not always the post, it's particular pundits. Because I also remember other people were like, I'm ready, sign me up, I will do whatever the government wants me to do. Well, all the Weekly Standard people... Uh, weekly Standard's good, folded. Good riddance, Weekly Standard. They've all ended up at the Post, the Times, and at the Atlantic. Well, they were also going under because they were an anti-Trump conservative magazine. And people were like, we don't care if you're an anti-Trump conservative magazine, we want a pro-Trump whatever. And so, I mean, most I'm not, of those, I don't agree with the Weekly Standard on a lot of these topics, but they did suffer because they were not going to toe the party line. Well, they're not the, the official mouthpiece of, of Fox News and stuff, but most of those, quote, giant, giant air quotes, intellectual, cons- intellectual conservative magazines are anti-Trump. But it's like, it's like 2% of the population, if that. I mean, not even, you know, it's like, it's like 40 white guys. Uh, one black guy and, and and a handful of women who are completely unapologetic about their being uh, uh, horrible, horrible people, and then dressing it up in slightly slightly elevated prose. And they get hired by the New York Times, Washington Post, and the Atlantic now, and the New Yorker, I think too, which is which is good for them, I guess, because uh, they've got a they've got a nice little brand niche, intellectual conservative anti-Trumper. But there is a bright side. Because the forces of resistance are being tested, and in some cases, I think they're coming to light. So there was a piece on the Arts Fuse just recently, I think as of the 24th. I think it was published on Christmas. Yeah. Uh, By your friend and mine, Jeremy Ray Jewell, who is review of the album Myth. We talked about a couple podcasts ago. Yeah, Lonnie, Lonnie Holly. Excellent stuff. It was really good stuff. And... So he's just reviewed a book about or written by the Reverend Dr. William Barber. It's called Revise, Revive Us and, Again. And the Reverend Dr. Rick Lowry. And the Reverend Dr. Rick Lowry. And the Reverend Dr. Liz uh, Theo Harris. Yep. And it's called Revive, Revive Us Again, Vision and Action in Moral Organizing. And it's really kind of surprising how y- you, you, we've gotten so used to thinking of the left as entirely secular. And even like anti-religion or mocking religion or whatever. And sure, there's plenty of that. And we think, and we're got, we've gotten used to the idea that conservatives are Christians or at least religious, and there's no um, there's no overlap between the two. But this is not true. And I think what was interesting about this review was that it talks about how 
uh, William Barber, who is a uh, 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 reverend in North Carolina. North Carolina. He was the NAACP, North Carolina NAACP chapter president or chair. I forget. Uh, he's the leader of the Poor People's Campaign, which had, I think, 40 days of protests all across the country earlier this year. They had it here in Boston. They had it all over the country. And they have been possibly one of the most impressive organizing forces in the country over the last couple of years, especially over the last year, because they're like interdenominational, interfaith, not really aligned with any particular political movement other than being on the side of uh, uh, of anti-poverty, which makes them sort of cut across all kinds of borders that typical politics is unable to do, essentially class uh, uh, being the foundation of it, and uh, some sort of moral center, mm-hmm. you know, more uh, Cornell Westy than, yep. than something else. Yep. That and harkens uh, back to a lot of very progressive uh, Christians and, and religious folks. Uh, all it goes back to the civil the rights country. movement. Absolutely. King was involved in that, obviously. Yeah. Uh, William Jennings Bryan was a, a major populist back in the day and a he very sure was. strong Christian. Jimmy Carter. There's there's a there's a real that there's a real standard where there is actually a uh, religious progressivism. And here's what Jeremy writes about it in his review. Dr. William Barber II is undoubtedly a voice in the wilderness proclaiming this thing which is to come. It's a peculiar job. His critics ask him if he is bothered to mention Jesus in his latest sermons, a question which resonates with Jesus' own challengers, wondering if he ever observed the law. One could argue that Barber's goal is to act on the fundamental Judeo-Christian moral law, to go into the world to do what you're called to do, not what the past dictates, but what is genuinely new and revolutionary, divine, as Walter Benjamin may have called it. Barber has lived this imperative in numerous ways, as a pastor, as the president of the North Carolina NAACP, founder of Repairers of the Breach, and leader of numerous egalitarian movements, both locally in North Carolina and nationally. This book's opening chapters provide useful accounts for the many works that he and his allies have performed. They are no small feats. Embracing multiple arrests for civil disobedience, going where no one has gone since Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Barber has effectively demonstrated again and again what he often calls fusion politics along lines, of, along lines of race, age, and religion. This he has done by leading movements challenging voter suppression laws, racial gerrymandering, and the wholesale dismantling of North Carolina's government brought on by the impetus of millionaire conservative Art Pope. Barber has also been at the forefront of the fight for $15 movement, struggling for a minimum wage increase and collective bargaining rights in regions and industries where these have largely never existed before, and most recently he has reinitiated the Poor People's Campaign, which takes its name, mission, and strategy from MLK's 1968 endeavor to unite working people of all backgrounds for economic justice. Now, I I, I like this a lot because I think you see in a lot of the progressive movements right now this moral imperative that was probably absent from from our more recent movements and definitely absent from from the left in a lot of ways the more radical left uh in the 20th century but when you look at the the rise of the DSA when you read their um their basic premises and stuff you know they they talk about a moral imperative for socialism when you talk to Reverend Barber you know he's essentially trying to enact socialism but doing it from a christian perspective or a an interfaith religious perspective or moral imperative uh you saw it at the heart of the sanders campaign as well that we have a moral imperative to uh have an economy that works for everybody not just the one percent 
(laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and, um, uh, it's also got the ability of very broad appeal that goes across, uh, political, uh, typical political allegiances. Absolutely. And, uh, Jeremy writes, he says that Barber argues that a skewed version of Christian ethics propagated by what he calls theological malpractice in order to accumulate power highlights particular conclusions about sexuality or gender over the perennial concerns of human suffering. In this case, he beats the fundamentalists at their own exegetical game. Barber totals up the number of biblical references to poverty to show how they overwhelm the odd and debatable reference to homosexuality. Barber also examines how the words evangelical and conservative have been co-opted. Barber declares himself to be, rightfully considered, a Christian evangelical conservative unpacking how those terms have been betrayed in recent times so it's conservative i think in the sense that it's conserving the legacies of the progressives that have come before who are in many ways driven by moral concerns and indeed by religious concerns and i just watched a documentary on king um about uh, his his later years lost in the wilderness and it was really striking how we think of king as sort of an unimpeachable figure these days everybody agrees that he's great little kids sing songs about him he's in all the textbooks there's a day celebrating his birth etc etc and yet when you look at the history he was not uh, a universally beloved figure in his time he had a lot of people against him even people from his own side quote unquote people who were turned off by the idea of nonviolence, people who were turned off by the idea that it had to be uh, religious or that it had to be particularly racial or that it was you know focused on the black experience people didn't like it when he came north and went I mean, when he came north from the south and people in chicago were like you have no business being here this is a whole other world um and then of course when he speaks up against the war in vietnam which he went over that speech a million times and he put a lot of his own integrity and potential political strength on the line especially since he'd worked so closely with lbj to get the civil rights bill passed and he speaks out against vietnam and then that's not enough people turn their back on him for that and then he goes into the poor people's campaign and he dies in memphis going to organize the the strike or and to support the strike sanitation workers for the sanitation workers in memphis i've been to the civil rights museum in memphis it's it's really powerful and it's really an example of him going above and beyond what he had to do for what he felt he need, you know for what he what he felt was right going above and beyond what he'd already accomplished to decide that he was going to go the extra mile and that was all deeply intertwined with issues of race class and religion that lord you know the lord compels us to do these things mm-hmm. that my following of the image of christ is profoundly tied into my desire for justice and peace and um, the eradication of poverty. And so it's really wonderful that um, Barber's continuing that legacy. And I hope to God that he is, I say that unli- not literally, um, or uh, I say that not ironically, I hope to God that he is successful and that people start to pay attention to that. And it's not going to be, it's not an easy struggle in in the least. Jeremy writes that unless the long-standing dichotomy between liberal theology and its detractors is bridged, then Barber's success will depend on his ethical denouncements alone. These may serve to rally the already converted, but it is difficult to see how his exhortations will settle contentious metaphysical disagreements between progressives and the conservative mainstream Protestant denominations, saying we are, after all, talking about believers who have gone so far as to support Trump, who is not known for his Christian virtue. This is is essentially attacking one of the long-standing sort of hypocritical positions of American conservatism, right. which is this insistence on Christian virtue while upholding 
and championing the persistence of human suffering. Right. Well said. So that's Reverend William Barber's book, Revive Us Again, Vision and Action in Moral Organizing. The Reverend Dr. William J. Barber II was the uh, chapter president for the North Carolina NAACP and uh, part of the or leader of the Poor People's Campaign and as well as an ardent uh, egalitarian. Uh, the book is Revive Us Again by William Barber with Liz Theo Harris and Rick Lowry. So check that out on the fuse. Thanks to Jeremy for writing that piece. Should we uh, do the best ofs? Should we... Uh, yeah, let's, let's talk best ofs. wrap up that'll that'll go live probably by the time this goes live did my yearly wrap up wrap up of uh noteworthy criterion titles for the year want to talk about that a little bit what are the noteworthy criterion titles this year well uh i chose five there was a ton so one of the films i wanted to give a shout out to was uh jim jarmusch's 1995 film dead man hell yeah yeah dead pure Man's cinematic movie. poetry heck yes and long time I've been waiting for that movie to hit Criterion. I knew that it would. It's just too interesting and poetic and haunting and enigmatic and wonderful and dreamlike to ignore. Um, Johnny Depp's accountant kind of goes on a weird quest. From the, Cleveland. From Cleveland, yep. To uh, to the Wild West, to kind of like a surreal and f- hilarious and odd. and To the town of Machine. Yes, out there in the, in the wilderness. And he stumbles upon a whole mess of interesting characters and some fun cameos including um a native american gary he talks farmer. to played by gary farmer loquacious who is a loquacious native american who is convinced that named exabache which means he who talks loudly while saying nothing yeah i, I wrote a short story in high school called exabache nice yeah nice. that's how much of a prick i was yeah well i mean you know uh <laughs> fake it till you make it uh, <laughs> They gave me a podcast. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we're on the airwaves, baby. So, um, and then so that so then this this uh, Exabache is convinced that Johnny Depp's character is actually the poet William Blake, reincarnate. Yes, and he has um, to ferry him back to the uh, the spirit world because Johnny Depp is uh, well, William Blake is not supposed to be here, and Gary Farmer, who's had an interesting life traveling all over the world, uh, finding William Blake's poems and paintings in a big book in a library somewhere as a child uh tiger tiger burning bright and all that says uh you must go back to the spirit world william blake you're not supposed to be here and then they go on this epic quest and uh then there's you got all kinds of fun cameos you've got iggy pop in, in drag you've got uh alfred molina as an evangelical rifle salesman billy bob thornton billy bob thornton crispin glover um probably maybe my favorite what would be robert mitchum the legendary hollywood badass yes. himself yes. as the sheriff as the like old wizened sheriff of this grimy old western town and it's a wonderful movie neil young's soundtrack to that film is incredible when i first saw that movie i was like who did the soundtrack they just get some drunk guy and put him in a room and have him slam on a guitar with a bunch of tremolo and then i saw who did the soundtrack well that's exactly what they did did. (laughs) in fact uh but that that crazy old drunk slamming on the guitar was none other than neil 
goddamn Young, the yeah. great Neil yeah. Young. And it's amazing. He he did that. There's there's on the and this is why the DVD footage is so great. The extras you have members of the cast reading William Blake's poetry, which is unbelievable, and you have footage of Neil Young in a San Francisco warehouse playing his guitar. He refers to his old black, his old beat up Epiphone. He's probably had since the seventies, and watching a rough cut of the film and then playing what he thinks the, yeah. the emotions are of the characters. Yeah, which yeah, is just fantastic. I, I'd known that's how he did the soundtrack. Was he just watched the the the, the scenes and just and just yeah you know it's it's amazing it's awesome and and so i really highly recommended that it's a beautiful transfer beautiful cinematography the actually the cinematographer robbie muller died this year which is another sad thing hmm. um so that was definitely one of my highlights another was a film that i really wanted to uh expose people to which is called a story from chikamatsu by kenji mizoguchi and in japanese film he didn't even have to read that off a piece of paper yeah <laughs> it's true <laughs> i'm just good like that you know well, I got the disc. Uh, Criterion was very kind to lend me a, a review copy, and I didn't get the chance to review it, but I did put it in my year-end, and I wanted to give it a shout-out because it's a wonderful film. It's a powerful movie. I showed it to a friend of mine who had no real uh, experience with Japanese cinema before, and he loved it, couldn't get enough of it, was very curious about it. And I think in, in Japanese film, it's always been a little tricky because there's an amazingly rich film culture, but it doesn't always get exported to the West. And so we all know about Kurosawa. He needs no introduction. Right. Obviously one of the greatest filmmakers ever, ever, Ozu. ever, ever. Ozu, right, who's kind of more like the, the poet of the interior life, right? Yeah. And then Mizuguchi. Have you seen some Mizuguchi films, Lucas? What else has he done? He did Sancho the Bailiff. He did I've Ugetsu. Seen Sancho the Bailiff. Yeah. Ugetsu Monogatari. Have you seen that? I have not seen that. That's amazing. They're incredible movies. They take the – basically, to put it in a sentence, they take the epic, powerful stories about – men in a harsh environment that that kurosawa mastered and he takes the quiet intimate transient poetic details of life that ozu mastered and kind of what and kind of combines that that power it's they're amazing and um it's a it, monogatari is actually a term in japanese literature for a tale of moonlight and rain is what it, i think it literally is supposed to refer to so it's basically like a folk tale mythology that type of thing specific genre so a story from a tale from shikamatsu is is that is one of those it's a monogatari story and it's basically about uh forbidden love it's about class structure it's about social hypocrisy it's kind of i don't want to say a romeo and juliet story because romeo and juliet's really cheesy by comparison but it's basically you know two lovers who dis discover that they actually do have feelings for each other uh, only after they are mistakenly assumed to be lovers by the community around them and then become ex uh, ostracized. They become uh, um, exiled from the community because of, of course, you know, the, the brutal uh, class structures of Japan and the sense of social shame that permeates so many things. They think that these two people are, are sleeping together. One of them's married, one of them isn't. So they're sent out, they're cast out together. And along the way, they actually start to literally fall for each other and then their love becomes real and then you know there's a huge um physical and emotional payout that they have to uh pay the price for and it's a really powerful film beautifully shot beautifully um transferred of course and i just i, I just want to always give a plug to misaguchi because he gets he's a he very well respected in japan very well respected among cineasts around the world but not always as big of a name in America, at least, as he should have been. And one thing that's interesting also, and this is this film carries that over, is that he has a very strong feminist mentality. He grew up in a family of mostly women. I think he was the youngest and had all, all older sisters. And so he saw firsthand how Japanese culture treated women, 
which is of course with disrespect as objects and so, so forth and um he was really pissed off about that and he made some really powerful movies about how women are debased in society with real sensitivity and real skill so a, t- a tale from shikamatsu by misaguchi was one of the highlights i think of criterion this year another couple ones that i thought were really fun was bull durham was released in october uh which i mean you can't say enough about that it's just it's baseball it's life it's Again, a feminist film, you know, Annie Savoy, uh, Susan Sarandon. It's a Kevin Costner film worth watching. It is one of the few Kevin Costner <laughs> films that isn't destroyed by the fact that Kevin Costner right. has one facial expression. <laughs> you know the Kuleshov effect? Like the actor looks at something and then his expression doesn't change, but then you cut to a different object and people project that emotion onto that actor's face. Right. So you get an actor with a blank expression. It's all you- about looking bored. Right. Which was, I think, Bogart's advice as an actor. Is yeah. Just look at something and, and, be, and look bored. And be bored, yeah. right. And, and then if you're looking at a baby, they're like, oh, he's looking yeah. at how sweet that baby Hitchcock is. Hitchcock demonstrates this in a, in a little tiny thing. You can find it on YouTube, I think, where yeah. uh, he, he has the same shots of before and after uh, cut. And uh, one time he looks at a cute little baby and he smiles and it's like, oh, he looks at a cute baby. And then one time he's looking at a, a woman in a, in, a, in a bikini and he's an old lecherous perv. Exactly. Yeah. So Kevin Costner's one expression <laughs> is a perfect opportunity for people to project emotions that he himself cannot suffer. Yeah, he's always got this sort of like uh, uh, open mouthed. Uh, yeah, stoic. Yeah. He has very moving cheekbones. Um, he has very <laughs> emotive cheekbones. But with a script this good and Bull Durham is top of the line good. In terms of its of its writing, anybody could crush this. Um, so any any Savoy played by Susan Sarandon with real sensual relish is a local gal who hangs out at the ballpark and observes the minor league baseball players uh, frisking and gallivanting about, and decides to take a young stud to her bed every spring and make a man out of them, and teaches them the ways of adulthood and by extension athletics and so forth and it's really just a fantastic movie about baseball and about um the, the people who make it and the people who don't and that finding love is really more important than just being uh, a superstar and so i really love the fact that criterion can bring the dead man it can bring the tale from shikamatsu it can bring andre rublev which was also released which is like the most epic yeah profound heavy soviet not Soviet, but Russian movie. It was a Soviet film. Yeah, but I mean, it wasn't made for the Soviet Union. It's 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 poetry. You know? No, it was. No, I, I well, he wasn't. He could not make it if if the Soviet censors didn't let him. It had, right. No, he that's made it true. In the Soviet Union. But I'm saying he wasn't making it as like a propaganda film. He's making it as a poetic movie about existence. Yeah. So that's that's but where I draw some of the that. some of the propaganda films are like pure cinematic poetry. It's where we get a lot of innovation from. It's true. Eisenstein. True. Uh, uh, the man with the movie camera. Yeah, who did that? That was um, uh, cool. Uh, Dovolatov. Dovshenko, maybe. No, Dovshenko did Earth. I think is what it's called. Okay, man with that's the movie about, camera. Is, that's about um, wheat farms. Dijka Vertov. Yes, 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 yes. Ziga, Ziga Vertov. Ziga Vertov. Jean Luc Godard uh, named his little his little Soviet uh, his his Maoist film cell. Right. Yeah. His two man. Hate the bourgeoisie right. full-time crew. Yeah, uh, Earth 1930, Alexander Dovshenko, absolutely fantastically beautiful uh, poetic film. It. I'd love to see that. Uh, yeah, I mean, the Soviet filmmakers were like the best filmmakers in the world. For, yeah. Outside of Hollywood. Sure. And Japan. France. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Germany. Jean Renoir. Italy and whatever else. Yeah. Jean Renoir. So, Jean Renoir. <laughs> Italy, not until... Well, I guess, no, you've got the... Um, oh, no, you've got great, great got shit the, coming out of Italy. Yeah, the the, well, they did the... Um, the uh, 
the really dramatic theater type pieces in uh in the twenties, some of the early early greats were were Italian films. So Bull Durham, a fabulous film, a nice change up from the heavier world cinema, and also to finish off with the my Criterion Collection choices of the year, The Princess Bride. Oh, there you go. Yeah, inconceivable. Inconceivable. And I don't I was, think you know what that word means. I'm not sure. You keep saying that word. I don't think you know what it means. <laughs> That'll teach you to mess with the Sicilian when death is on the line. Oh, um, Wallace Shawn. What else have you told Wallace Shawn, a lonely nation, turns its eyes to you. <laughs> and so, I mean... I wrote I, about Wallace Shawn this year. Yes, you did. You absolutely did. So, yeah. I mean, just a movie I grew up with. I'm sure you grew up with. It came out in 87. So, several generations, I think, have grown up with that movie. And it would be a real shame if another generation of kids grows up without watching The Princess Bride 700 times. Because just from the script alone, you have in-jokes that will last you a lifetime. It's a good book, too. Prepare to die. And the book's good. Yeah. And the book's good. And it's it's actually... And it's nice how they design it because the actual edition looks like a fairy tale book. They yeah, do like a yeah, fake yeah, yeah, book yeah. with the... Well, that's how the uh, original book cover was, I think, too. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you can't beat that. That's that's a, that's a must-have. It's inconceivable that you would not have that. And it's a meta it's a meta narrative. And it's quite a meta narrative. <laughs> it's a deconstruction of the fables. It's a it's a, literally a book about, you know, handing down stories. Mhm. Or a film about. There you go. Check out the Criterion. Spend top dollar for, for DVDs are 25 bucks for DVDs. You know? Thirty dollars is Blu-ray. So. Wasteful plastic contraptions. Yeah. Well, they're environmentally <laughs> friendly now. So oh, okay. When they get good. eaten by whales, it doesn't irritate their stomach. Good. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. important. That's what green means, right? That's what Greenpeace wants. That's essentially what the green yeah. economy is going to be based on. Right. It's, it's not causing whales to have indigestion. We need to bring the right whale back, so we're just going to feed them old DVD cases. That's yes. That's what Ocasio Cortez is going on about, right? Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Steve one? Elman, Wait, Steve on, Elman on, had on. a wonderful list of great jazz recordings. But of all time, right? Of all time and also from the past year, which were... I only listened to a few of them because I only had time to listen oh, to a few this is by them. multiple Arts Fuse critics. Yeah, there's a bunch of different people who... Oh, wait, no, no, this is from 2018, sorry. Yeah, well, there's dance, there's all kinds of stuff. I mean, honestly, and also I'd just like to say it's just me and Lucas here in the studio, so we can't get everybody's uh, take on everything, but there's an unbelievable amount of stuff that we're that's being covered right now by us i mean by the arts views like there's dance stuff there's film reviews there's uh books of the year um uh tv it's really just a ton if you go to the website check it out we can have a year you can have probably like you could fill up the next year from just the recommendations along of what's the wheat and what is the chaff in the arts world john coltrane ballads from impulse originally 1963 Speaking of Sublime, this session is the single greatest achievement of Coltrane's relationship with producer Bob Thiel. He was going to be our intro music for episode one. Mm -hmm. Uh, Thiel urged Coltrane to play a group of neglected standards, all in relaxed and dead slow tempo. And the saxophonist met the challenge brilliantly. With these eight tunes, Coltrane redefined the art of jazz, ballad playing. You never get tired of hearing it, and that's no cliche, says Mr. Elman. Winton Kelly and Wes Montgomery, Smoking at the Half Note, Powerhouse, 1965. Duke Ellington and his mother called him Bill, 1968. That's that's devastating too. Read the read the uh, summary for that. No great love hath ever been shown on record than this exquisite tribute to Ellington's partner Billy Strayhorn. The session contains some of the most feeling music ever made in a jazz context. Of all the greatness here, there are two indelible moments. Johnny Hodges' solo on Blood Count, Hell Yeah, which shakes a furious fist at the Reaper for stealing a friend and artist. 
and Ellington, Ellington's impromptu solo piano version of Lotus Blossom, recorded as the session was ending, with band members packing up around him and suddenly falling to a hush as they realize Duke is having an unexpectedly private moment of grief. The Canadian reissue includes alternate takes, almost as good as the ones finally chosen. Unspeakable from 2004, some new stuff from Bill Forsell. I know nothing about Bill Forsell. Very little. Stan Getz, he's pretty good. Yeah. 1961's uh That's focus. actually really interesting. Yeah, read that read that summary too. This is one of the most audacious music experiments in history, all the more remarkable for its sheer beauty and the ingenuity of its star. Sauter was known for his classical level musical sophistication when he co led a nineteen fifties big band with pianist Bill Finnegan. For this date, he prepared seven through composed charts for strings, with no obvious holes for a front voice. Getz was given the task of improvising solo parts over the string charts. The two elements, one completely written, one completely unwritten, coalesced magically. No one else ever tried such a thing again, possibly for the same reason that no one ever tried to build another Taj Mahal. Yeah, what a concept, right? Seriously. Yeah, that's amazing. I have heard a little bit of it. I haven't heard the whole thing. I'm going to listen to that as soon as I get the chance. What else? There was Let's also- just do it now. Fuck the podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry, kids. Uh, Dizzy Gillespie's on there in Electrifying Evening from 61. Mingus. Uh, Mingus, 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 Mingus. Mingus, Did Mingus. I get, Mingus is that the right Mingus. number of Minguses? I think there's five Minguses. Mingus, 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 Mingus. Yeah. Mingus, 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 So Mingus, late Mingus, Mingus. who was uh, an absolute beast of a man. Yeah. I love the documentary of him getting evicted yeah. i mean it's sad that he's getting evicted yeah but he's just shooting rifles at the walls <laughs> <laughs> yeah. talk about how he got the place because like i was gonna turn it to a school but you know like nothing yeah. really happened with that he's and, got yeah. scraps of uh, hits from 1948 lying around he's smoking cigars it's actually a great little insight into eviction itself because usually they, the notice gets handed down and then they're like in 24 hours the sheriff is coming and he's going to kick you out uh, and it shows just how easily it, or how, how much it disrupts a person's life, mm-hmm. especially an artist like Mingus. But, you know, mm-hmm. any ordinary citizen, it's 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 absolutely traumatic. Mm-hmm. So what's up with Mingus, 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 Mingus? The best of Mingus's recordings for any one person on any one day depends on that person's mood. I just reheard Oh Yeah, an LP I remembered as mostly a good-natured burlesque. I read I listened to that recently, too. And discovered that I had forgotten how strong it is yeah. and what mighty contributions Rashawn Roland Kirk Booker Irving and Jimmy Nepper make to the party. Not enough people talk about Ross on Roland Kirk. Talk about him. Ross on Roland Kirk was the blind dude that used to play like seven instruments at a time. I believe that's true. And uh, he used to eat a lot of eggs. Okay. Didn't I know about the eggs. He had, he had a large appetite. Okay. Uh, absolute madman. Right. He is probably the only person that can make uh, Bagarak better. Yeah, yeah. He's the only person that can possibly make. He Bert does. Bacharach I say better. a little prayer for you, doesn't he? Yeah. On like three different saxophones simultaneously, or whatever the hell. Yeah, there's a live video of that on YouTube that everybody needs to watch. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely mind blowing. Yeah, the leaders of Columbia dates are rich and wonderful. The later Atlantics have some unforgettable performances. Gunther Schiller's reconstruction of his masterpiece Epitaph is a landmark achievement, but for overall excellence and solo strength, this one is hard to beat, and it gives lasting pleasure no matter what your mood. Despite the fact that Haitian fight song appears here as uh, Ora de Cupitis, de Ora. Decubitus, decubitus. Decub- I think it's decubitus, but I, I, but yeah. And goodbye, pork pie. You <laughs> say decubitus, I say decubitus. <laughs> Let's call the whole thing up. Right. And goodbye, pork pie. Hat appears here as a theme for Lester Young. You hear the leader along with soloist Eric Dolphy, Booker Irvin, and Jackie Bayard at the absolute top of their game. 
It's Mingus, Mingus, it's Mingus, mean, Mingus, mean, Mingus. Mean, mean bunch of 1983 uh, from Impulse by Mingus. That's just let's just go through the names of that. Mingus, Kirk, Irvin, Nepper, Dolphy, Bayard. That's amazing. That's an insane bunch of people. Eric Dolphy alone makes that yeah. album interesting. And then you throw in Booker Irvin, who's mm-hmm. sensational. And uh, Jimmy Nepper is totally a boss. I mean, that's amazing. Bunch of sidemen. That's a great album. Spelled Knepper. Yeah. I think it's Nepper. I don't know. Spelled Knepper. San Francisco Jazz Collective, live 2010, seventh annual concert tour. The works of Horace Silver. Oh, yeah. You know where Horace Silver's from? That's the only reason why I'm mentioning this. Is he from Norwalk? He's from Norwalk, Connecticut. Wh- who else is from Norwalk, Connecticut? Just your your humble co-host. Over hey! There. hey, great Horace Silver. Yeah, he went to the same high school as me. Played in the jazz band. Uh, he's also got Horace Silver's "The Jody Grind" on here in 1967. Shep, Sutton, Salal, Art Tatum. So yeah, uh, I mean it's a mean it's a mean set of jazz stuff. Yeah, I can't wait to hear the floor, the Fletcher Henderson. There's a Bob. I think it's Bobby Hutcherson. <laughs> playing the vibes and he's doing a coltrane cover i want to say a wise one i listened to that yesterday it was amazing the vibraphones are a wonderful instrument yeah i like the vibes mm-hmm. they got good vibes good vibes that's from steve Allman, new york public radio uh uh host uh he's been on wcrb uh as well as the popular music editor of the schwann record and tape guides from 73 to 78 the dude knows his stuff no doubt Favorite music from 2018. Belly, Dove, Providence-based band released two albums before breaking up in 95. Reunited in 2016 after tours of the U.S. and U.K. Released album number three, Dove. Uh, shows maturity and sound and lyrics. Leads off with three songs about childbirth and childhood and parenthood that form a potent trilogy. Uh, best movie that the critics of the uh, arts views hated, Bohemian Rhapsody. Did you see that? I did not. Yeah, neither did I. Uh, convinced this movie had to be great uh, then I had read all the terrible reviews but then our critics saw it anyway critics suck Bohemian Rhapsody may not be the seventh seal and the filmmakers play fast and loose with chronology in several places but it's every bit as entertaining as a Queen concert and that's well worth the cost of a movie ticket yeah so, uh, I'll take what I can get there you go uh, best movie that my girlfriend wanted to see so I went along <laughs> to my surprise I liked it A Star is Born I, indis- I expected to like that I did uh, not expect to like it, and I totally did. Yeah. I thought it was an excellent movie. It was a very good and movie. And I went for the exact same reasons. Yeah. Real chemistry between uh, Lady Gaga and yeah. um, uh, Chris. Totally the always there. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and it really did take like the, the, the tropes of the stars born from the 50s and yeah. 70s and update them. I really enjoyed it. I got a lot out of that movie. Whoever, uh, whoever reviewed this one for us. Uh, got saved because they were going to go see Crazy Rich Asians, <coughs> which doesn't look like a film anybody wants to see. Uh, best singing from an actor I didn't know could sing. This this leads nicely from the uh, the last one. It's Bradley Cooper, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did a good job. Yeah, he did. He did a really good job. Best musical for people who don't like musicals. Uh, Jagged Little Pill at the American Repertory Theater in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Hmm. I didn't see that, but 
who doesn't? It's just so funny how I was just talking about that the other day. Like I remember when You Ought to Know came out. It was all anybody could talk about for so many times. For so best many. vault of unreleased tracks. Bob Dylan gets the award for that one. I mean, unsurprisingly, he's just got so many unreleased tracks. I know. My God, he's written like. 2,000 recorded tunes, I think, uh-huh. on, on actual studio recordings. Uh-huh. So it's got to be like three times that. And I haven't even listened to the boots of, this is the boots of um of Blood on the Tracks, right? Right, yeah. I haven't even listened to them yet, because Blood on the Tracks is one of those records that gets me right in the, right in the, in the, in the Valentine. In the feels. Right. And so, I mean, if it's going to be a record that you put on that reminds you of every breakup you've ever had, because it's about his breakup, right? the, the boots are going to be just, you know, over the top. It's emotional. Six discs. Right. Called More Blood, More Tracks. Oh, boy. So, I already had so, a lot of blood. Yeah. I already had a lot of tracks. Now you're going to give me more blood, and you're going to give me more hey, tracks. Yeah, I was just done cleaning up the blood on these tracks. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to go throw blood on those, more blood on more tracks. What are you doing, Bobby? Mr. Zimmerman, can I have a word? Bobby, what are you doing with me, Bobby? Interestingly, that didn't go to Coltrane, but his unreleased stuff. Mm-hmm. wasn't actually all that unreleased. It was stuff that people knew of yes. and had known of for a long time. Right. And we more or less got the better versions of them on actual recordings, I think. Both other... directions at once you're talking yes. about? Yeah, they're like outtakes. They're not. Yeah. It's not bad. It wasn't revelatory. It's not yeah. a new Love Supreme, but it doesn't have to be. Right. New Coltrane is good Coltrane. Um, it shows him. It shows the artist it's in a the workshop. studio workshop. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a sketchbook, which is fine. Uh, as a lot of uh, Dylan's stuff is from his 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 boots, mm-hmm. totally. Most deserving artist on the 2018 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame ballot: Todd Rundgren. Interesting claim. Until Who said the monkeys, uh, I don't know. Mm. One of our critics, mm. uh, possibly Jason Rubin. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't. Until the monkeys get in, it has zero legitimacy. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of the uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, uh, I mean, uh, I I'd say there's a lot of things in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame that that yeah. lend credence to the thought that it's not really a, a legitimate honor. Sure, but uh, I do notice each year's ballot, and after a moment of retching, can usually find one or two worthy artists. This year, the most worthy is Todd Rundgren, who truly has a lengthy, eclectic, and innovative career as a singer, songwriter, musician, and producer. He does. He is currently third in fan voting behind Def Leppard and Stevie Nicks, right. uh, which only serves to prove our critics' point. Yeah. Worst definitely. loss from this year? Can I actually throw in one of, one of my uh, successes for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Go for I'm it. I'm really glad about the zombies. There you go. Were denied for so long. Should I try to hide uh-huh. the way I feel inside? Yeah, and I mean, um, <laughs> the singles alone are strong. All the singles are pretty strong, I think. You make me feel good. And She's Not There is a great song. She's not there. Yeah. <laughs> Let me tell you about the way she looks. The, the way, way she acts and the color of her, her hair. Her eyes were something good. Her eyes are clear and bright. <laughs> Great stuff. And, of course, the pinnacle, Odyssey and Oracle, which I've totally been been just blasting all year long, actually. That was a big find for me. I've always liked it. I've always enjoyed the songs. I never really listened to it as a coherent album too much before. And then I just would let the song, let the album just 
just cycle through and i've listened to the whole thing according to my uh song tracker like eight nine times this year while i would run or walk or something and it was just amazing and I, it was a sh- it was a goddamn disgrace that they never in the rock hall of fame before that and this year finally they righted that wrong aretha franklin is the arts fuses pick for worst loss oh no doubt look at this list of artists for 10 albums beyond category or at least slip around several this is a list you're probably not going to find anywhere else on the internet Jope Bevings, Canatus, or Canatus, Canatus, Rafiq Bhatia, Breaking English, Charling Dar- Ch- Chanti Darling, R&B Volume 1, John Hassel, Listening to Pictures, Nikisa Laveau, Radio Sewell, Igor Levitt, Life, Minor Empire, Uprooted, Mueller Rodelius, Imajori 2, Senyawa, Sujud, Serpent with Feet, Soil. Uh... Favorite performances by women, Courtney Barnett, Zoe Beckbinder, or Beekbinder, Melanie Brule, uh, Buka, Nico Case, Shamikia Copeland, Jane, bunch of other stuff. Thanks to Milo Miles for that list. Uh, live Boston music moments, uh, Betty LeVette, Kaylin Kalor, Playing for the Planet, Alu Mesfin, lots of good stuff there. I saw some cool shows in Boston. Um... This year, I was really excited about that. I got to see some cool stuff. Um, Lucinda Williams was in town. Yeah. Did the entirety of Car Wheels on the Gravel Road at the Paradise, which was fantastic. She did two shows back-to-back of just that album. David Byrne was here. David Byrne was here. Um, I caught him in Connecticut, but he was definitely here. Great show. I wrote about that for the Arts Views, actually. Um, The Damned came around, a Mm. band I love. They were fantastic. Uh, the Damned, I saw I saw uh, Lucinda Williams. Richard Thompson was here, which was a wonderful set. Very warm, very exciting. People really into the show, and he was really giving, and, and really kind of, I always liked him, and I wanted, I knew it would be a good show, and it was really better than my expectations. Pharaoh Sanders came through this year, right? He did, yeah, and we missed him. In the him. summertime, yeah. Yeah. That uh, was pretty brutal. Most disappointing performance at the House of Blues, March 25th, Dan Auerbach. Really? I could really expect to be disappointed by that because I wouldn't expect to be appointed. <laughs> oh, really? Not yeah. a, not a Black Keys guy. Not a huge Black Keys guy. Yeah. So Black Keys frontman rolled into town with a review that included the Boston debut of Louisiana blues soul journeyman Robert Finley. Finley was a nice discovery, but Auerbach's own material turned out to be such bland Americana that even the presence on stage of several members of the seminal Memphis Boys studio band couldn't make the music interesting says noah schaefer thanks noah for that let's see what else do we got mc5 i saw mc5 you saw that's what you saw yeah yeah. noah was at the show too i saw him and then i was gonna go over say hi but he disappeared into the crowd but the mc5 was wonderful mc50 doing kick out the jams 50 years down the line quite impressive with wayne kramer still still kicking out those jams best movies of 2018 with a few disappointments Best narrative film of 2018. If Beale Street could talk, there you go. The James Baldwin film, based on uh, one of his early novels. Later novels. Later novels. <laughs> I, I guess yeah, I haven't read it. Uh, the rest of the ten best. We the Animals. Rider, the favorite. Eighth grade. Eighth grade was pretty good. I was a little, uh, I was a little surprised by that. But it's Bo Burnham, and Bo Burnham is a is a is a, is a great talent. I love his comedy. He really is. Burning, A Star is Born, Can You Ever Forgive Me, Madeline's Madeline. 
best documentary, Shirkers. Uh, and the rest of the 10 best documentaries, Minding the Gap, Dark Money, Filmmaker, RGB, Tea with Dames, Monrovia, Indiana, Won't You Be My Neighbor, because everybody needs to know about Mr. Rogers. Absolutely. And uh, Free Solo, which we actually talked about on the podcast. Yes, climbing, we did. Climbing rock faces with no uh, harnesses. Yeah, and we read the we read the review by Jay Atkinson. Oh, that foreign film, Cold War. It's a Polish film by the guy that did Ida. Oh, okay. I want to see that real bad. It looks beautiful. Same sort of uh, equal equal sided. What is it? Uh, uh, one by one uh, aspect ratio that he shot Ida in, which I think won best Oscar or won the Oscar for best foreign film. I believe so. It's uh, amazing. Movie. We watched that film. Again. Yeah, we did. Yeah. That was that was that was beautiful film. So yeah, Cold War. That's what that one is. Yeah, jazzy Poland, uh, mm-hmm. Soviet era. Rest of the five best foreign films: Roma, Burning, Loveless, and Custody. Best actor: Christian Bale in Vice. Can't wait to see that. <laughs> Rest of the five best: Bradley Cooper, John C. Riley, Steve Carell, and Brady Jandreau. Best actress ast- a- actress goes to Joanna Kulig or Joanna Kulig from Cold War. And then the rest of the best are Melissa McCarthy. Can you ever forgive me? Livia Coleman. Mary Elizabeth Winstead and Glenn Close in The Wife. Supporting actor, Brian Tyree Henry if Beale Street could talk. Then you've got Richard E. Grant, Stephen Young, Sam Rockwell, Lucas Hedges. Rest of the best actors. Oh, Barry Jenkins is the best director. And then the rest of the best go to uh, Pavel Pavlikovsky. He did Cold War. Quauron for Roma. Uh, Yargos Lentianos, the favorite. Bradley Cooper, Star is Born. Best Cinematography, Matthew Libatique, A Star is Born. Interesting. Hmm. Best Editing, Bob Murawski and Orson Welles, The Other Side of the Wind. Mm. That movie sucks. I still haven't seen it. (laughs) I am not as interested in it as I thought I would be. I mean, it's obviously probably a good choice for Best Editing because that's really what that film is, is an editing feat. Uh Both what Orson Welles was doing to make it the fake documentary that he wanted to make it back in whatever years he was making it. However many over however many years he was making it, and then of course uh, what Bob Morosky had to do to actually turn it into something. Mm-hmm. So yes, that is that is an incredible an incredible feat and deserves to be mentioned. I'd like to mention also First Reformed. I think as my best film of the year that I saw, that was awesome, and it completely pissed everybody off in the theater, which was good. And I like to see stuff like that, and it was necessary because it showed you know a lot of intersections of things in politics that are important. Uh, re- that we've already talked about today on the episode, uh, religion, ethics, morality, climate change, and uh, Ethan Hawke does a good job as an alcoholic Protestant priest mm-hmm. uh, at a mm-hmm. uh, at a basically like a uh, sideshow tourist attraction of an old church in upstate New York. Check that one out as mm-hmm. well. It was really powerful and it was really subtle. And um, uh, Paul Schrader directed it, who's made quite a few good films in his time. Yeah, it was it was like a remake of Taxi Driver without the without the taxi driver. Ending. I mean, every movie he does is right. about the yeah. lonely, sad right. man right. dealing with existential issues right. and all that. But I thought this was really well done. And I th- what was interesting too is that Schrader, as a film critic, because he is a film scholar of of note, he made a movie. I mean, I'm sorry, he made it. He wrote a book about um, the flatness of um, people's cinematography, different directors' cinematography, uh, Brisson, Ozu, among others, in terms of not having a lot of depth in the camera, so it's everything's kind of 
right. put on the same plane, right, right, right. which gives which adds an austerity. So you really see the suffering and the longing in people's faces and so on. It kind of, sh- it kind of, it, in a Protestant style, it sh- it trims away all the extra trappings and the and the emotional and um, visual fireworks to give you some kind of spiritual core. And I thought that was really that worked really well in first you reformed. Com- compare it to a uh, northern and southern Renaissance paintings, I think. Yeah, yeah. And how that sense of like stripping everything else away. Dreyer was another one of his um, big people for that. So it's like stripping away all of the uh, extraneous uh, 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 fancy pants stuff and giving you this character's inner torment, which I don't think always works. But in this case, I really was was taken into that character that character's world, which was which was I think a very timely one. So check out all of the Arts Fuse's best ofs, favorite dance performances classical music performances we should have a books one coming up soon best opera and vocal recital recordings and of course the ones that we've already gone through today uh there's a couple of pieces as well that our editor bill Marks, says are among the best to actually be published this year uh he thinks uh the pieces on the niceties which were the foundation for one of the episodes of the podcast Mm -hmm. one of them written by bill marks one of them written by myself shows one of the debates that sort of went on in terms of the the role of you know a dramatist in terms of how much they're supposed to carry along an audience along uh how much critics are allowed to assume uh, about audiences and of course about politics because just about everything that most people uh thought was buzzworthy buzzworthy this year had some sort of political bent to it given the nature of the situation the uh commentary interview on the jazz bubble which was the arts commodified which is about following the money in in, in arts production which if you do you find out it comes back to pretty much the same corporate assholes that control our politics mm-hmm. so check out the jazz mm-hmm. bubble interview from bill marks Bill Marx's piece on the need for negative criticism, something that I don't do enough of, except on the podcast. This is how I sort of balance it out, I think. I talk shit on the podcast. I write about stuff I like on the, <laughs> on the, on the magazine. Uh, check, out our, check out our piece on Van Morrison, and also check out Women Being Locked Out of the Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra. A couple of really essential pieces, essential arts fuse pieces from 2018 in review. So I guess that about wraps it up for 2018. This was a stupid year. That was the year that was. Thanks for listening on uh, uh, to the Arts Fuse podcast in our in our inaugural season year. All that kind of stuff. We um we apologized for our amateurishness, our lack of insight, general ignorance, jejun discourse, jejun discourse, uh, and ludic for, transgressions. Yes. Yes. And and uh, but we appreciate you sticking with us. Those of you have who have, we definitely appreciate those of you who have given to us. If you'd like to uh, make a New Year's resolution to support arts coverage in the Boston area and beyond, as you can tell, we we cover a lot of really necessary things that get passed over in in, in mainstream media. Uh, consider supporting us at Patreon.com/slash/TheArtsViews. All of that money goes to paying our writers so they can continue to cover the arts for you. Any uh any final thoughts on 2018, Matt? Um it's been a strange year. Um it's really about the friends we made along the way. Mhm. A long strange trip it's been. Yeah. Uh, look case, at us. Case look, at this, look at this pablum. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh but I think in some ways, you know, I'm glad this year is over. I'm glad we're moving into something new for 2019. I'm what's, excited what's about that? some of the things on the horizon. 
well, the Arc Studios is going to expand. We've got this podcast. We've got new writers yeah, coming into yeah, the mix. Yeah. We're adding talent all the time. Our fundraiser just went really well, so I think we're going to be able to maintain ourselves for a, a good, good, good long while. That's right. Thanks to all those who participated in the Fuse's Winter Appeal. We love you. And I think we're going to have a, a lot of really interesting stuff coming up in 2019. So that's been uh, the Arts Fuse podcast in 2018. Uh, the Arts Fuse, uh, you can check us out at theartsfuse.org. I'm sorry, at artsfuse.org, patreon.com slash theartsfuse. Please like, subscribe, wherever you get this podcast from. Give it a review. Helps other people find it. Uh, tell one friend. Tell one friend about it. Share this on social media. And uh, we'll see you in the new year. Have a good one. Mm-hmm.